Good morning. My name is R. Dallas Green, and it's good to have our team back from South Carolina. Nothing like your own bed to sleep in, nothing like your own shower to take a shower in. Fletcher was saying that uh, I let the Holy Spirit just wash over me. So that was their third missionary journey, believe it or not, the third time down to South Carolina. Uh, but we're in the story of Paul's second missionary journey. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. I know many of you all were away, so we're going to cover some ground again and emphasize some things and pick up some applications by the time we finish. Starting in uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul, okay, Paul's on his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul was waiting for them. Who were them? That's Silas and Timothy, who were at the last city. He was greatly distressed, greatly annoyed, greatly provoked in his spirit. He saw something that really bothered him. He saw the city was full of idols. People were bowing down to idols. In the Old Testament, it says that you chop down a tree and you use it for fuel, for burning your fire, for cooking your meat over, and then you carve that into uh, figures and you bow down to it. These idols have eyes but can't see. These idols have ears but can't hear. So are those who worship after idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and, and the God-fearing Gentiles. Now, this was normal for the Apostle Paul. He himself was Jewish. So he felt like his first obligation was to reach his fellow countrymen, Jewish Jews who had traced their um, ancestry to Abraham. As he was there also in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there, and a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now that was a great insult <laughs> to call somebody a babbler. A babbler, is the word is a seed picker, someone who's just kind of rattling on, babbling on picking up a seed from some other, some other place and bringing it there to Athens. So, democracy began at Athens. <clears throat> In the Acropolis, there was these various gods and goddesses. One of the goddesses in the Acropolis was Athena, the goddess of wisdom, the goddess of love. That's where Athens got its name from. Uh, there were 30,000 gods in this city. Athens was the place where the famous philosophers Socrates and Plato and Aristotle lived. I believe it was Aristotle who said that, young man, choose well your wife, and if you don't choose well, you can become a philosopher. So, so they had this ancient history of much philosophy there in Athens. Athens had its heyday several hundred years before but now been conquered by Rome in 146 B.C., but they allowed Athens to continue. Romans loved Greek art and architecture. They used the Greek language. Um, so, Athens. When Paul walked around the city, he would have seen the temple to Apollyon and Zeus, and he was provoked with them. When Paul saw these impressive structures in Athens, they didn't intimidate him, they didn't seduce him, but they made him very, very angry. What did he see? What kind of philosophers did he see there? Well, first of all, there were the Epicureans. These were the atheist materialists. They denied the existence of God, the Epicureans did, and the afterlife. They believed that this is the only life 
we get to know. So we should get the most out of life. Pleasure and happiness were their highest virtues. We know the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die from the Epicureans. The philosophy was to get the most out of the moment, to love the one you're with. If it feels good, do it. They were the party animals, the Epicureans. The second group he runs into are the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were pantheists. They believed everything is God. God is the sky, God is the stars, God is the rocks, and God is the trees. Their attitude was one of resignation. Um, they prided themselves on their fatalistic attitude of endurance, of hardship without complaint. These were the two dominant schools of thought in Athens of the day. I asked the question, what would an outsider say if he walked around Frederick, our city? Well, the first thing they may notice is that there are seven spires of the downtown churches. You could come to the conclusion that the city is fairly religious. And if you walked around downtown, you'd see restaurants, right? Many restaurants. And come to the conclusion that people here like to eat. But you'd also see the emergence of breweries and distilleries popping up everywhere. And maybe you see a shift from those religious spires, those religious churches, to distilleries and breweries. You'd also see fortune tellers coming in. Perhaps there's a shift from people coming to church, seeking after the will of God, turning to pagan fortune tellers. Well, if a person was an Epicurean, they would visit the liquor stores and the restaurants because life is all about pleasure. If a person was stoic, they just would endure their difficulties, their hardships without complaint. So what did Paul do in this city? He did not denounce their idolatry. He complimented them on their interest in spiritual things. He built a bridge. Paul was trying, like we are always trying, to build a bridge between himself and the people of the city. The city itself was full of people who were ignorant of God, who did not know God, who were bowing down to various idols. He says, I walked around your city. I saw you were very religious. I noticed an altar to an unknown God, and the unknown God is what I want to tell you about. For the, so the first point is that God is the maker and giver of all things. Look at verse 24. It reads, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Paul unveils a startling truth, that there are not many gods, there is only one God, and he is the maker of all things. He made that which is visible and invisible. He made that which was large and that which was small. It is the Lord himself who is the creator, the maker. There are not many gods, there is one God. 
He is the uncaused cause. He is the source, the originator of all things. You see, God himself is a giver, and he has no needs. Our God is self-sufficient. He cannot be contained in various temples. He is not served by human hands as if God needed anything. It is God who gives us life. It is God who enables us to move. It is God in whom we have our being. It is God who determined the, from one, nation, one person to build the nations and determined their times set for them, the rise and fall of all kingdoms. Secondly, God draws all humanity to himself. God draws people to himself. To the Athenians, Athens was their goddesses, and they dwelt over on Mount Olympus. People took journeys to find their gods, to placate their gods, but the true and living God reached out to humanity. He is not remote. He does not hide. He is near to us. God made the very first man. His name was Adam. And from Adam, he made all humanity, every nation. And despite the different pigments of our skin, we are one race. You understand that race is a social construct. That according to the Bible, we're all part of the human race. And within the human race, there are people that are saved and people that are lost. And God determined where and how long we should live. And God allowed the nations to rise and fall. You see, before them, there was the Assyrian kingdom that rose and then fell. Then there was the Babylonian kingdom that rose and then fell. And then there was the Greek uh, kingdom that came into being and fell. There would come the Roman Empire, which would rise and then fall. You see, God allows nations to come into being and then to rise and fall. He would make the point here, according to one of the poets, that we indeed are God's offspring. We are made in God's image. The divine image is not of gold and silver and stone. God in the past was overlooking the ignorance of mankind. And now Paul would speak to them about Jesus and the resurrection. He says, now you know the truth, and God commands you to repent of your idolatry and turn to him. You see, when a person turns from that which is false to that which is true, that is called repentance. It's a change of the mind. It's to turn oneself around. Why? Paul will tell you that there is judgment coming. The day of judgment is fixed on God's calendar. You and I don't know the day, but God will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Our judge is not some remote deity on a mountain. He has lived among us. His name is Jesus Christ. That was chapter 17. Now chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Of course, Athens was the intellectual center of the world. Corinth was a commercial center of the world, a city of about 200,000 people, and it was famous for its isthmus. The isthmus 
of Corinth was about three and a half miles wide. And what would happen was ships would sail in the Aegean Sea toward Corinth, but if they had to go around the bottom of Greece, it was 275 miles. So what actually happened at the Isthmus of Corinth was ships were unloaded and they developed these carts to cart the ships across the Isthmus. It saved the seafarers um, a hazardous journey. Corinth was also famous for its bronze. We spoke before about the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. Remember the gate that was 75 feet tall? There was a man who was lame who was laid there, and Peter um, said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I say unto you, in the name of Jesus, arise and walk. Well, that happened at the beautiful gate made of Corinthian bronze. Corinth was known for its bronze making. It also was famous for its Isthmian games. You know, the Olympics began in Athens, but second to Athens was the Corinthian, uh, Ifs, it's hard to say, Isthmian Games. So, Corinth was a very important city, a more strategic city than even Athens. But the key part of Corinth was it was a center of worship for Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Behind Corinth, on a hillside, stood the great temple of Aphrodite. Every evening, 1,000 prostitutes, priestesses of the temple, would come down off the mountain to ply their trade. It was very much like San Francisco or Las Vegas or Rio de Janeiro or Bangkok. You could, if you went into Corinth, feel the darkness, the spiritual stronghold. You see, Paul himself had experience, just like you experience, spiritual strongholds. Remember when he went into Philippi, and there was a woman there that was doing fortune-telling, and she said, these men are telling you the way to be saved. These are men are servants of the Most High God. And Paul cast the demon out of her, and then her owners became very upset, and they caused a riot, and Paul himself was apprehended and beaten and thrown into prison. You see, what happened in Philippi was he experienced a spiritual stronghold. And there was a spiritual stronghold in Corinth. In Corinth, the pagan belief system created a stronghold that was intensely resistant to the gospel. You could say in Corinth there was sexual perversion. There was racial strife. There was political tyranny. We live in Corinthian conditions this very day. So let's look at what happens in the city of Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Now Pontus was on the southern rim of the Black Sea. And Aquila himself had a wife whose name was Priscilla. And um, they had been expelled out of Rome. So what happened was the Roman emperor, whose name was Claudius, had driven all the Jews out of Rome, and these two Jews, Aquila and Priscilla, came over to Corinth, and there they met the Apostle Paul. It says that they both were tent makers, and they stayed and worked with them. In other words, Aquila and Priscilla became part of the missionary team. Paul would pick up Dr. Luke over in Troas, 
He would pick up Timothy and Lystra, and he picks up now Aquila and Priscilla in the city of Corinth. In their day, in the synagogue, what would happen would be that the men would sit on one side and the women on the other. And people would sit according to their guilt. The tent makers would all sit together. So it's very likely that Paul meets this couple in the synagogue on a Sabbath, introducing themselves, hey, what do you do? I'm a tent maker. What do you do? I'm a tent maker. Well, let's make tents together. So they moved in together, maybe the same big tent. They... Uh, worked together, selling tents, and Paul began to disciple Aquila and Priscilla. He began to pour his life into them, and their lives began to change. And every Sabbath day, Paul would go to the synagogue, and Aquila and Priscilla would go with him, and this is what he did. He tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks until verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia... They had stayed behind, remember. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. What apparently happened in the storyline is that Timothy and Silas brought a large gift. The believers back in places like Philippi, like Lydia, saw that Paul had needs, so they sent over a gift. So now Paul didn't have to work as a tent maker. He could devote his full time to preaching the gospel. He was preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But look, in verse 6, when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, what happens is that there's going to be people in the city who are going to believe. But there's a strong remnant there that was opposed to the message that Paul was bringing. And they became abusive to Paul, saying very ugly things to him. And this is what Paul did. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. You know, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and of salvation to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles. But when the Jews seemed unreceptive to his message, he took that message now to the Gentiles. That's why Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles, because he was largely used to reach Gentile people. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. So what happens is, adjoining to the synagogue was another house, the house of this man. And this man, Titius, becomes a believer. He hears the gospel, and his life is changed. And he invites Paul to come to his house in order to have um, fellowship and teaching. It says that Crispus, the synagogue ruler, verse 8, and his entire household believed in the Lord. So what you have happening in Corinth is a revival, an awakening. You have the gospel going out. The Corinthians have never heard this before. And now some of them are believing and becoming part of the church and being baptized. So, let's talk about some principles we find in our story. The first is, if we want to reach our city, let's build bridges and tear down barriers. Most of you have seen the bridge that collapsed on 95 near Philadelphia. There are currently 
rerouting traffic and rebuilding that bridge. The task of building or rebuilding a bridge takes time and it's hard work. Ultimately, to drive over a bridge requires trust. You see, bridges connect two uh, land masses and they have to be constructed. And Paul himself was a bridge builder. There was much in the city that would have offended him. As he walked around the city of Athens, as he walked in the city of Corinth, he would have seen shrines and statues and temples and idols everywhere. He could have blasted them for their idolatry. He could have condemned them saying they were going to go to hell. But they had never heard the truth. And he built a bridge. He built a bridge. You see, he paid attention to the culture and he and he tried to connect with people in that culture. One of the ways that we build bridges is we listen to one another, right? We listen to where a person's coming from. There's a story of an older man who had never really cooked. He never really gone to the grocery store, but his wife became ill during COVID. So he said, I'll go to the grocery store, but she made sure they had a list of items to purchase at the grocery store. She gave him a list of seven things to purchase. So he came back with one bag of sugar. He came back with two dozen eggs. He came back with three hams. He came back with four boxes of detergent. He came back with five tomatoes. He came back with six eggplants. And he came back with seven green peppers. Little joke. So what's really important, you see, and the idea of having dialogue is listening to each other, understanding where a person is coming from. Paul was a bridge builder. There is much in America that offends a believer. We listen to a song and we find the lyrics offend us. We turn on the television, watch a show, and feel offended by the content of that show. We see a society that is adrift. We get offended with Gay Pride Month, even the rainbow being apprehended. You see, I could be an angry man stirred up all the time by simply watching the television and shouting at it, or I could choose to build a bridge. Paul knew that in Athens, the idol they worshipped was their intellectual pride. In Corinth, it was their sexuality gone awry. They were ignorant. They didn't know what they didn't know. So he went to the synagogue, and being Jewish, he tried to build a bridge to the Jews. He went to the marketplace. He was a tent maker, and he could make good tents. He could serve God by serving people. He presented truth to these philosophers. What are some of the philosophies that we're seeing now in America? We're hearing much that there is no God, there are no absolutes, that this life is all there is, and you better get whatever you can get because you only go around once. This life is all about, so the philosophy goes, making a name for yourself, becoming famous, getting rich. And many have bought into what's known as the American dream. The question is, how is that philosophy working for you? One young actor, whose name was Zac Efron, explained why in his 30s, or his 20s, he had to check into an alcohol rehab facility. 
He said, I had done back-to-back films, and I was burned out. I had made a name for myself. I had become famous. I was rich beyond measure. But there was something lacking in my life. I couldn't fill up. I was so deep in my work, and my work was all that I had. I had bought into the lies of Hollywood. You have to get to know the culture, to pay attention to the culture, to see how people are swallowed up by the culture, not to be intimidated by the culture or seduced by the culture. A Christian holds on to their beliefs, their convictions, but they help people to see the deception. Though Paul was provoked by the idolatry, he didn't run away from the people of Athens or the people of Corinth. He ran toward them. When we're building bridges, we need to find points of agreement. Paul begins by saying, I observe that you all are very religious. God created us to worship him and know him. It's our primary desire, like hunger for food. But because of sin, we have learned to suppress the truth. You see, all of us are asking questions like, how did it all begin? Why am I here? What gives meaning to my life? What happens when I die? I want you to become a bridge builder. I have told atheists, I admire your passion for truth, and I can see that you're a moral person who wants to be intellectually honest. I have said to liberal activists who hold positions much different than my own, I am touched by your desire to serve humanity, to make sure people are fed and clothed and educated. These are noble desires. You see, what God really wants us to be is a bridge builder between people. Stories told of a man, a farmer, who had two sons. And the two sons were both farmers. They had planted seed together. They had harvested together. They had shared their machinery. For 40 years, they had co-labored on this large farm. But then they had a small disagreement that became a big disagreement that went into a major explosion and then months and weeks of silence. These two brothers were estranged from one another. And the one brother, to irrigate his fields, he made a big ditch like a creek in order that his fields would have enough water. The older brother was extremely miffed by all this, that his younger brother had done this. And a carpenter showed up one day with a toolbox at his house. And he said, I'm looking for some work. Would you be willing to hire me? He said, yeah. He said, you see that ditch over there? That used to be a meadow. My younger brother dug it. I'd like you to build a wall, to build a fence, as high as you can build it between the two properties, in order that I would never see my little brother again. The carpenter understood the situation. He says, I'll go right to work. Now, the older brother had to go to town. So he went to town to get some supplies. He said, over there is the wood to build that wall, that fence. When he came back, the older brother's <laughs> jaw dropped. He couldn't believe what he saw. <laughs> the carpenter, while he was gone, had built a bridge between the two properties. 
And standing at the other side of the bridge was his younger brother. And he said, I can't believe that you built a bridge after all these years, after all the things I said about you, said to you. And the two brothers met in the middle, and they embraced. And they said, I'm so sorry that I said what I said. Will you forgive me? And there was reconciliation between the two brothers. And the carpenter picked up his toolbox, and he said, it's time for me to go. And he said, no, no, I've got more work for you to do. And the carpenter said, I can't stay because I've got more bridges I need to build. I just wonder in your life, where does a bridge need to be built between you and someone who is estranged? Someone who is distant? Someone you haven't talked to? Maybe a family member there's a disagreement with? Maybe there was a, a loan that became an offense. What I'm trying to say is the greatest bridge builder of all time was Jesus Christ himself, who came down from heaven to build a bridge between mankind and God. You see, there was a large abyss between us. So Jesus took off his heavenly robes. He took on humanity. He came to our earth. He went to a cross nor that there might be a bridge between us and God. He took our sins upon himself and offered to us forgiveness that the bridge could be built between us and God. Secondly, proclaim the greatness of our God. The core of Paul's message was that the true God is so much bigger than these idols. The essence of false religion is to truncate, to shrink down this view of God. God gets reduced to a size that we can easily explain or manipulate or use to get something we want. In their day, they had Poseidon. If a person was a seafarer taking a journey, they would ask Poseidon to throw javelins at the sea monsters. Artemis was the god of prosperity. If you want to get rich, you went to his temple to make an offering. Nike was the god of victory. Worshipped by athletes and warriors and Michael Jordan. <laughs> Athena was the goddess of wisdom. Aphrodite was the goddess of sexuality and beauty and fertility. They had their gods. But Paul explained to them that these are false gods that you're relying upon. These gods don't really exist. Our God is all self-sufficient and deserves to be worshipped. In him we live and move and have our being. Thirdly, let's expect that some will believe and some won't. In Athens and Corinth, there were three different reactions to the gospel. The first one was, when they heard about the resurrection, some people mocked. They laughed out loud. They said, this life is all there is. They mocked someone like Jesus who conquered death. They said, this is an outrageous claim. Some of them said, we'll hear you again on this subject. They won't say you're wrong. You've made some good points. We're not ready to believe. We'll think, we'll think over what you said. Some of them, it says, believed. There were some of them who joined the, the, the fellowship of believers. And fourth, let's not be afraid to speak up because God has many in our city. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is what it says. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. 
Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Let's not be afraid to speak up, because God has many in our city. Paul, in his humanity, had become afraid. And God understands our humanity. In his experience, Paul would preach the gospel, and then riots would happen. Paul had been traumatized. From Paul's perspective, the future was predictable. Like a boxer going into the ring after being beaten, he heard the bell ring. And if we open the door to fear, fear will take over in our life. And we fear many things that will never happen. And fear can be an acrostic, right? Fear, F, false, E, evidence, A, appearing, are real. Fear is false evidence appearing real. When we get afraid, we fear the worst. We can fear the cancer. But what if God has a cure for the cancer? We can fear the hard conversation. But what if in that conversation there's a breakthrough? We truly understand one another. We can fear speaking out in public. But what if God wants to use our voice? He says, keep on speaking. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Paul's fear made him unable to speak. The Lord knew his silence would imprison his speech. So he's actually going to give Paul boldness and courage. You see, boldness and courage happens not in the absence of fear, but in the presence of fear. And do not be silent. You see, Paul is being commanded to speak, to not be silent, to not be afraid. How do you answer the questions in our culture about gender and marriage and abortion, about racism, about death and suffering? Regardless of what the world says, we believe God's Word. We start with Genesis as our foundation. How many genders are there? How many do you think? Well, if we go to the book of Genesis, we read, God created man in his image. Male and female, God created them. In the image of God, God created them. Humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. Science confirms that there are two genders. Women have XX chromosomes and men have XY chromosomes. There are exceptions, the XXY and others but it's less than 0.06% of 1%. You see, God made a perfect world, but since then there's been mutation and diseases as in the fallen world. How do we think about marriage? What would the Bible say about marriage? Well, we read in Genesis 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. Adam didn't look for a female chimp and say, I think I can date her. We're certainly a lot alike. God put Adam to sleep, and in his sleep, he took from his side one of his ribs, and God made the woman. Now, woman was taken from his side. The question comes up, well, if one of the ribs was taken from Adam, how come we now have, don't have one less rib? Well, let me try to give you an analogy. If, for instance, you were in the shop and you lost a finger... Would your children be born with one less finger? No. 
So what God designed was a very specific thing of taking the rib from Adam and fashioning a woman. And so this is what marriage is. For this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, what God designed is a man and a woman to be in covenant with each other for a lifetime. And then he gave to, Adam, he gave to Paul three promises, and here they are. The first thing he promised him was, I am with you. God himself would be with you. You know, the Great Commission is, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you. For lo, I am with you always. Paul would be, God would be with Paul, and he would promise him his presence. The second was his protection. No one will attack you and harm you. In this city, no one will bring you harm. Now, Paul's experience elsewhere was he would be attacked and harmed. He had scars on his body to prove it. But there would be no violence upon him in the future. In this window of time, he would be safe and protected. And the third of his promises was, in this city, I have many who belong to me. In other words, Paul, there's going to be people in your city who are, going to be, who are going to believe when you proclaim to them the gospel. Do you believe there are people in this city who, when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, are going to believe? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can work in these times in which we live through us? Can we appropriate these promises to not be afraid, to not be silent, to speak up, to realize that God himself is with us, that God himself will protect us, and that God will give us fruit of a harvest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, here we stand on a Sunday morning hearing what happened in the life of the Apostle Paul in his second missionary journey how you gave him courage to go to a place like Athens with its philosophers, its intellectualism, to speak to the philosophies of his day, to proclaim to them Jesus and his resurrection, and to see two that would come to faith in that town. And then to take this precious gospel over to Corinth, a city that was corrupt and fallen, a city that was known for its degradation, and seeing people who believed, who were cleansed and justified and sanctified in the name of Jesus, that there were people there hearing this precious gospel. And Paul himself receiving this word to not be afraid, to not be silent, to speak the gospel, to know that God was with him to know that he would be protected and to know there would be people in the city who would be saved because they heard the gospel. God, would you give us faith to believe? Would you help us, Lord, in the midst of the darkness to be the light? Would you help us, Lord, in the midst of the decaying culture to be the salt, the preservative? Oh, God, would you use us as you use the Apostle Paul? Thank you, Lord, for using 
our team down in South Carolina, building bridges to people that have been affected by storms and poverty, restoring those relationships, Lord, showing them that they're not forgotten, they're not forsaken, that they are loved, that we've come to help, we've come to be your friends. Lord, would you use us in this town? Would you allow us to reach our city, Lord? We pray in Jesus' name. We invite you to stand. We're going to sing one last time. Praise is always befitting of the Lord our God. He deserves our highest praise because he is great. I think back on the history of the church to a neighbor of ours who was Mr. Masser. And Mr. Masser was a pig farmer. And you may not know this about me, but I don't eat pork. <laughs> so I wonder how we would make a bridge, right? Because when I went to see him, He'd like to show me his smokehouse with all his hands dangling from the ceiling. And uh, always had a bowl of beans with a bunch of um, ham just like loaded in there. He uh, also was on oxygen at the time and liked to smoke. And I thought, we may both enter eternity here soon. <laughs> so as I sat with him in his kitchen <clears throat> and he ate his bowl of beans, one day he said to me, would you like to have some of these beans? And um, they had a lot of pork in them. And I ate the beans, ate the pork, and didn't die. But my heart was about building a bridge, building a bridge. Because I wanted to connect with him. He was our neighbor, and he was a little hostile at the time that the church came in and all. And we sat several times. And one day I was talking to him, and he lost his wife. And I said, would you like to be with, Ms. she was a believer, Mrs. Master someday? He said, oh yeah, I can't imagine eternity without her. I said, there is, there is a solution, it's the gospel. And I shared the gospel with him, and he believed in his kitchen, eating a bowl of beans, <laughs> smoking his cigarette. And I thought, Mr. Master, it's going to come a day, we're going to need some land from you to expand. The reason we have this is we're able to take his land and give him a life estate. And he became my friend. We went from hostility to friendship, maybe over a bowl of beans and uh, some pork in them. So what I'm trying to say to you is this. God used Paul to be a bridge builder, and God can use you to be a bridge builder to somebody, right, who maybe is far, far away from God, who can, you can build that bridge over to, that you can meet them in the middle somewhere and show them the love of Jesus, right? Show them the love of Jesus. That's what Paul was up to in Athens and Corinth. He just wanted to show people, one after another, the love of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, for these returning ones from their trip, we pray, Lord, for your rest and for their uh, being re-strengthened and revitalized. Thank you, Lord, for pouring out their souls in this work in South Carolina, building bridges wherever they could. Thank you, Lord, for the work that goes on through the week here of relationships with people. There's estrangement, there's distance. We realize we need to build some bridges, find some common ground to meet people in the middle, to show them the love of God. So, Lord, would you use us? Would you use us? That's our prayer, to use us, Lord, to be instruments of your will in this world. Where there's a division and strife, polarity, help us to sow peace, Lord that there can be reconciliation, we ask 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll see you next time.